0: I know as a surgeon how people fear surgery. And I know from my field of culinary medicine that people will seek nutritional answers to avoid surgery, even if surgery is the only way they can be cured. There is so much bad information out there. So let me tell you the story of a man who had been diagnosed with cancer, the kind that we can cure with an operation. He was wealthy, famous, and a genius. He could get the best care from the finest physicians in the world, and did. He was so famous that doctors made house calls. When he was first diagnosed with cancer, a type that can be cured through surgery, he delayed treatment. Instead, he adopted a strict vegan diet, because he was told, Vegetables would cure or stop his cancer. Being a vegan wasn't new for him. He had been a vegan before. He had been on a lot of odd diets. A few months after he was diagnosed, there was this best selling book called The China Study by T. Colin Campbell. The China Study is often cited by new vegans as, quote, science behind why they became vegans, unquote. The book convinced President Clinton to become a vegan. I don't know if he read these lines from the book. Quote, Furthermore, a pattern was beginning to emerge. Nutrients from animal-based foods increased tumor development, while nutrients from plant-based foods decreased tumor development. Unquote. But the book and that quote are pure nonsense. Not only is this best-selling book misleading, not only is the science shoddy, but when you drill down to the statistics of the original studies, they don't support the conclusion that plants stop or prevent cancer. But it isn't the first time people made the claim that vegetables can prevent, stop, or cure cancer. And I don't know where this famous man, ignoring the advice of world-famous physicians, decided to go with this information. But he did. Delaying his life-saving surgery and his cancer continued to grow. And after a painful few years, Steve Jobs died. My name is Dr. Terry Simpson, and this is my podcast, Culinary Medicine Food Cons and Food Conversations, where we have conversations about food as medicine and discuss food cons, exposing myths, cons, and mountebanks. It would be great if there was a single food or food group, something we could wrap our brains around that prevented cancer or heart disease. Wouldn't it be great if we could cure or prevent cancer with just dietary intervention? So how did Campbell, a PhD in physiology, not an MD, come to the conclusion that animal proteins cause cancer, and being a vegan would stop it? I'll quote from his book. There is enough evidence now that the U.S. government should be discussing the idea that the toxicity of our diet
1: is the single biggest cause of cancer.
0: But let's get into his
1: book. Oh yes, The China Study. That lovely book. Oh my goodness. It's come back, has it?
0: It, it, it does seem to be making a comeback they've had. They've put out a couple of movies, Forks Over Knives and other stuff, which... Are not really documentaries, but really are more movies. But it came to mind because I continue to find patients that come in and say, Well, I'm going to adopt a vegan lifestyle, which is okay. I'm always happy to meet them where they are. But when I ask them why, they say, This is the book.
1: Mm, yes. Yes, I've heard that many times with a number of different books. I've actually met some of the authors of some of these books. And it's very interesting to see how passionate and how committed they are to selling those books. I mean to helping people be healthy. Uh, You know, the China study was, um, it was a very interesting book. And, And quite honestly, you might think that it does have quite a lot of data because people seem to be so devoted to following what it's suggesting. But as a scientist, when you start looking at the information that came out from that particular book, it kind of leaves you scratching your head and, you know, at times pulling out your hair at the same time.
0: That is Jason Tetro, microbiologist, author. You may have read his columns in the Huffington Post or read his books, The Germ Code and The Germ Files. If you haven't, you should. So let's go into some of the data for this for Dr. Campbell, who is a committed vegan uh, and thinks everybody should be because in his belief, animal proteins cause cancer based on A, some of the work he did in China and B, some of the work he did with mice fed bad peanut butter.
1: Yeah. Well, first off, um, before we even get into the, the, the data with the humans, you have to realize something. When we're talking about mice... They act very, very differently than us. If you believe Douglas Adams, they're incredibly smarter than us. But at the end of the day, if you're taking any kind of um, information that you're getting from a mouse, uh, we, we like to call this you know, fundamental research, fundamental data. We don't call this even preclinical data. Preclinical means that you're using an animal that is even more closely related to humans, like primates. So when you start looking at the results that are coming out from mice, you kind of have to realize, okay, well, this may be something, but it's not something that you can put in a book and claim to be fact until you've actually done those future studies. And of course, in this particular book, he decided that he was going to do that in you know, the China study.
0: Yeah. So his first conclusion was he fed the mice bad peanut butter, which had an alpha toxin they developed tumors. And when he gave them high levels of milk protein, they, these mice had worse tumors than the other mice. And from that came the conclusion that, well, clearly proteins from non-plant sources are evil.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that when you're ingesting a protein by itself, your body is going to digest it in a certain way. There's a process in, in, into how that happens. And that's sort of one individual component. But the problem that you face is that you don't just simply eat proteins. I mean, when was the last time you were just eating, you know, L leucine by itself? It's tasteless. Yeah. And
0: I always overcook it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, the thing is, is that, you know, you're at the other end of the Maillard reaction. So, you know, it's it's just going to burn. So when you start looking at all the other components, then what you start to realize is that there are other factors that are involved. And if you don't start looking at all the other pieces of the puzzle that make up the food that you've just ingested, you're really doing yourself a disservice. So when you start looking at how, you know, plants are, then you're really looking at, you know, the idea of fiber and the fiber is non-digestible, which means that you're going to have to be incorporating higher levels of bile and that's going to lead to what they like to call a more efficient breakdown of the food so that it become more absorbable and potentially have less impact on the immune system through inflammation. That's great. That's absolutely true. When you start looking at something like dairy, you're incorporating other components. And again, you're going to have the bile, maybe not as much. And depending on the microbial composition that's in your gut, you may end up actually creating a whole bunch of beneficial molecules that are going to help your immune system. Or if your microbial composition is such that they're just going to you know, chew up all that lovely dairy stuff and then pump out all these toxic byproducts and this happens, we like to call that dysbiosis, then certainly you're going to potentially have inflammation and sparking the immune system so that you could literally end up with a higher risk for cancer and and other diseases. So at the end of the day, the protein really doesn't fit into the equation. But if you happen to be committed to selling your books. I mean, helping people, you might actually find yourself going into one spot, such as protein, and then making these rather outlandish conclusions. We we like to call them overstatements.
0: The only problem with people who are selling their book, even if they think their premise is right, is that they have sold an unproven hypothesis. But now let's look at the actual data from the study and how it was collected. So I wanted to also go to what he did in China. His theory was, I'm going to go out to these rural villages where they eat traditional food. And then we're going to collect all of their blood samples and see how they react. So one thing that bothered me was, it's not like he collected Sample of villager A and B and C
1: and D and made that sort of typical scattergram we're used to.
0: He pooled it all together.
1: Yeah, and what I find interesting is that um, you know when you start reading the how he did this, you know you've got six thousand people, three hundred and sixty-seven different variables, eight thousand comparisons to see whether or not our diets are responsible for us becoming sick, and you know that is all fine and dandy, but Here's where it gets a little odd. First off, you're pooling everything as opposed to doing individuals. So in that case, you're losing the variation, which is good if you're trying to create a a statement. But by the same respect, you're also losing the individual variability. And I think that is where things become really problematic. Because when you forget about the individual, then you're forgetting about the whole complexity that comes with being an individual. And that needs to always be taken into consideration. Otherwise, you start making statements that you know, may sound like they make sense, but in reality don't. But even in this study, that, that pooling of, of all the people to create those associations and try and find what we call risk factors, it didn't really pan out the way that he would have liked. And, and this is what bugs me the most about this particular type of study Let's just put it this way, you've done risk analyses before, right? Yeah. And you know that we calculate that risk factor of a particular disease based on some action that we take. When we do this, we usually create what we call a fraction of of 100, it's kind of like a percentage. And the closer that you get to 100, the more likely it is that that particular activity is going to be a risk factor for that disease. Now, I should also mention that if the amount is negative, in other words, there's no correlation, then you can't really make a statement. So in, in terms of the cancer, there's not really a heck of a lot of, of correlative data. It just kind of is out there. But if you actually look at something else that you know, he was looking at, and this is heart attacks because y- you've heard too much red meat leads to heart attacks, right?
0: that 's what some people say yes,
1: yeah, exactly, well, at the end of the day, when you start doing these correlation studies and you start causing these percentages or, or these risk factor amounts to be calculated, you find something very strange now, this is actually coming from his own data let 's just talk about fish. if you happen to be eating a lot of fish well then the the number that comes up with respect to heart attack is minus 15 let's try that with eggs because i mean surely we're going to get better than minus 15 right right well we do it's minus 13
0: so just for our listeners what this is saying is not only is it not a positive
1: correlation (laughs) it it might be beneficial to eat fish and maybe eat eggs. And surprisingly that's what a lot of people suggest and yet for some reason this particular study said otherwise don't know why. So when we go to the animal protein intake which is of course his big thing, right? Well, the fact of the matter is is that the correlation is minus 28.
0: So animals are good for you.
1: Yeah, animal protein is actually pretty good for you when it comes to your heart attack.
0: And I had another question about uh, one other thing he did, and this is kind of in your wheelhouse. He seems to ignore schistosomiasis and liver cancer as a cause of liver cancer and seems to think it's (laughs) the animal protein.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that's, again, when someone is very committed to selling those books or helping people out, they're going to say what's in the book, right? And so something as um, unfortunate as uh, schisto, which, you know, is happens to be endemic in many areas and is a priority in, in healthcare, uh, doesn't seem to really play a role in this particular um, design. One other thing that you really need to think about, and I, I don't know about you, but, um, you know, when you start talking about things like, you know, chronic diseases like cancer or or heart attacks or stroke and things like that Th- there does seem to be one particular enemy that maybe we don't talk about so much and was completely ignored in this particular book have you ever actually measured blood glucose on people i do that yeah yeah and 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 i mean we do that for something called diabetes right
0: yeah a lot of my patients seem to have that
1: yeah well it, it turns out that if you start looking at, rather than at diabetes, you, you look at blood glucose as a potential risk factor for a heart attack. That risk, and remember, meat was minus 28. The risk of blood glucose is plus 30.
0: So let's just also put it this way. In a village, when you're taking blood glucose and pooling it together, you're going to have somebody there who may have a blood glucose of 80, normal, doing fine. Mm -hmm. And you probably have some people there that might have it at 300 and not realizing what's going on inside of them because unless they're peeing a lot, they probably don't know they have blood glucose
1: problems. Exactly. So there was a separate study in 2013 that actually started looking at, well, how can we associate this? And what's really interesting is that that 30% kind of woke a number of people up who went back to the study, went back to the China study to start looking at whether or not maybe it had nothing to do with meat protein, and maybe, just maybe, might have had something to do with that blood glucose. So when we talk about blood glucose, a lot of us end up talking about sugars, and of course, a really good form of sugar comes in the form of bread, wheat, right?
0: Yeah, Northern China has a lot of that.
1: Yeah. And so when they started looking at that, all of a sudden, when it came to heart attacks, surprise, surprise, um, that number was uh, 50, positive 50. Now, of course, they don't have wheat everywhere. They might have corn. So maybe if you're having more corn, that'll help. But that was 30. Or sorghum, which is a huge thing in China, was also 30. And millet was about 37. At the end of the day, when you start thinking about it, you've got a minus 28 from meat. And in terms of blood glucose, as a result of eating too many grains that are non-rice, you've got anywhere from a 30 to 50% increase in your chances of having a heart attack. And you start going, well, why is he going after meat instead of going after a more balanced blood glucose level?
0: We ran through those statistics fairly fast. An analysis of Campbell's data shows his conclusions are not backed up by his data. In fact, the opposite conclusions have better data, that meat, fish, and dairy are a healthy diet. We will have more information about this in the blog yourdoctorsorders.com. It wasn't only Jason who came to these conclusions, but many other people who have looked at the data from this study. The study wasn't only about cancer, but also about heart attacks. So the conclusions are looking at the data is fish seems to be pretty good for your heart. Yeah. Meat seems to be pretty good for your heart and yeah. meat and fish are and, and cancer doesn't seem to be that sort of an issue unless you happen to have Schistosomiasis, which he ignores. Yes. Refined grains aren't really good for you. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't read those conclusions in his book.
1: No. And, and you see, the problem is that sometimes scientists, including myself at times, well, we unfortunately fall into something that we know as bias. I'm sure you've heard about that.
0: Once. I heard that
1: once. Once, once, Yeah. Yes. Well, bias is a huge problem when it comes to science, because what happens is that, you know, when we're performing an experiment in a lab or, or even something as vast as a 6,000-person clinical trial, we formulate a hypothesis. We have a theory that we want to prove or disprove. I think that's the problem, is that in many cases, when we start doing these studies, we're actually trying to prove something, as opposed to find out whether or not it actually is true or not when we do these types of of tests, it's really great when you're doing, say, a clinical trial for a drug. Because essentially, you're talking about does the drug work or does the drug not work, which is great for a clinical trial. But when you're doing risk factor associations, like this was done in the China study and and a number of others, I mean, we've seen some really interesting clinical trials come up with some very odd conclusions. You forget about the fact that Human nature is a dynamic variable in and of itself. So if you go into rural China and you look at where those people are and you look at how those 367 variables could be altered, you start to realize, well, there's a couple of things that maybe they should have looked at, you know, the idea of the environment.
0: I can't buy that this was a terribly well done study.
1: That's normal, (laughs) unfortunately.
0: I can buy that this thing was publicized exceedingly better than in almost any poor study I've seen in a long time. Yes, absolutely. And the problem that I have as a physician and a surgeon, there are body bags that people have to account for when they come to these conclusions that they come to. Let me give you an example. Colin Campbell, in his book, said he was talking to a woman who had the BRCA1 gene, which is the gene that increases significantly a woman's risk of cancer. She was going to undergo a double mastectomy because she wanted to decrease her risk of breast cancer, which her mother had died from, her aunt had died from, her sister had died from. And he said, he was trying to talk her out of it by saying, if you just eat plant, you probably will never get breast cancer. Yeah. I mean, that's practicing medicine without a license.
1: Well, in a way, that that's sort of almost a criminal act.
0: He was upset she didn't listen. I'm glad for her sake that she didn't. But considering this is sort of that, you know, and I had a, an acquaintance of mine, which was the reason for this podcast besides this patient, who is a dentist, so some scientific training, and he decided to become a vegan based on reading this book.
1: hmm You know what? Unfortunately, unless you've had an opportunity to um, read through numerous clinical trials, learn how they're developed, learn how information is gathered, and then how that information is all put together, you run the risk of being convinced of a particular statement as a result of bias rather than from the data itself. And this is something that we see all the time. I mean, um, are you still drinking alcohol? Me? Periodically, yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that you shouldn't be touching a drop of it or you're going to die, based on a more recent uh, clinical study in The Lancet.
0: In fact, we just, that that podcast, uh, that was one of our, I think our fifth podcast.
1: Oh, so yeah, exactly. Um, The other thing is, uh, are you eating lots of dairy? Because apparently, if you eat dairy, you can jump out of an airplane without a parachute.
0: Well, because I have lactose intolerance, I probably could.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So I mean that's the problem with these clinical trials is they come up with a particular bias, and then when they go through the testing, what they do is they look at the variables in such a way that it helps them to achieve the bias that they're looking for.
0: Food as medicine. It is too often used by quacks. Not that what we eat doesn't affect us, it does. But in the culinary medicine movement, many don't like the phrase, food is medicine. I think we in the field of culinary medicine need to take back that phrase, food as medicine, simply because we can show where reasonable eating decreases risk of diseases the Mediterranean diet has clear reductions of risk in heart disease, cancer, dementia. The DASH diet has clear reductions in hypertension and stroke. The problem is when mountebanks, charlatans, maybe even well-meaning, think that food can cure something or completely prevent some disease. There is something about food as medicine that appeals to every human because it provides sometimes simplistic and easy answers to complex medical issues. But even more, it empowers us. It gives us a key to our health. And we kind of want to encourage that. So here's what happens when the vegan activists hear this podcast. They're going to say that Steve Jobs wasn't always a perfect vegan. Because Jobs' death doesn't fit into their narrative that plants protect you from cancer. They will say that Jobs didn't eat perfectly, although if you read the biography about him, you will see that he did. But let me tell you about a patient of mine. He was 36 years old, and I had diagnosed the metastatic colon cancer that would ultimately kill him. And as I was sitting in his hospital room, telling him the results of the operation I performed, telling him of the horrific findings of the cancer, he couldn't understand he couldn't believe he had cancer. Denial's pretty common in medicine, and denial's more common when you're young and think you're immortal. Ignore the blood in the toilet, and you may miss the chance to cure the colon cancer. Think that you have something special about you that you won't get cancer, and it's easier to justify not going to the doctor. It is human nature to want to understand and control our bodies. We think that if we do everything perfectly, well, we won't die. But we do. We all do. We just don't want to die too young, like my patient did. As a physician, I don't want you to miss the chance to cure a disease, to let symptoms go on too long, or to be taken in by a myth like this young man. A myth perpetuated by those who play doctor because of food. In culinary medicine, we talk about food as medicine, but the difference is, we know medicine. A food myth killed this young man. A myth allowed him to ignore the signs that would have sent most people to their doctor. He didn't think he needed to call when his body was telling him, screaming at him, that something bad was happening. Because he believed someone who wasn't a doctor. When I had that difficult conversation with him, the one where I had to tell him that the colon cancer was spread throughout his abdomen and his liver throughout his body, that I couldn't cut it out. And when the cancer doctor, the oncologist, told him he couldn't cure it, but that this cancer would kill him. Within months, if not weeks, my patient came forward with that myth. He said, Doc, I have been a vegan since I was 14 years old. In fact, He was raised as a Seventh-day Adventist, so he had never eaten meat in his life. But he had read Campbell's book, and he believed it. And now, he's gone. To be clear, there is nothing wrong with being a vegan, but there is something wrong if you think it is a perfect diet. It isn't. My patient who died ignored the clear warning signs of cancer, partially because he was under the false belief that he could never get cancer because he ate vegetables and never in his life ate meat. Then there was Steve Jobs, who had every advantage, but chose not to listen to the best physicians on the planet. It's sad when a genius made that mistake, because hucksters out there gave him bad advice. Special thanks to Jason Tetro for lending his comments to today's show. And of course, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Culinary Medicine with me, Dr. Terry Simpson. While I am a doctor, I am not your doctor. And you should always seek the advice of a trusted, licensed medical provider with experience in your particular condition or concern before taking any actions. But if I am your doctor, what are you cooking tonight? Culinary Medicine is a part of the Your Doctor's Orders Network and is produced and distributed by our friends at Simpler Media. Evo Terra, my sensei for beer and podcasts. My executive producer is the talented and beautiful producer girl from Producer Girl Productions. You can follow me on Twitter where I am at Dr. Terry Simpson. I'll be back next week where we'll have another conversation about food as medicine or unveil another food con. Until next time, don't drink the water, drink the wine. Hey, producer girl, you were born in Hong Kong. You lived there for a lot of years. Tell me about Chinese food.
1: Why don't we just forget this part?
0: I like this part. I don't even know what Evo's going to put in. (laughs) Sorry, Evo. All right, Evo, I think we're done. <laughs> I like editing.